Let's turn again to Matthew 16, uh, just to show you our text for this evening. It's found in the verses number 15, uh, down to uh, the verse 19. And we'll be focusing our attention even a little bit further than that as we get through the message. But let's just read it together again. He asked his disciples, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Amen. We trust that God will once again add his blessing to the reading of his word. And just before we come to the preaching of this text, let's pray together again and ask for God to speak unto us and to have that word in season. And may it even be applied to our souls at this time, even tonight. Our Heavenly Father, we again approach thy throne, and we do so with a desire for thy voice to be heard in the preaching of the scriptures. And we want, Lord, to be hidden behind this text. We do not want to get in the way of it. We do not want to be a stumbling block, but we want to be simply a stepping stone, if possible, uh, for individuals here tonight to see something of Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, even a stepping stone seems too high uh, for us to be. Lord, just simply come and make yourself known in whatever way possible. Lord, come and take the scriptures that we've just read. Come and take portions that we might read throughout the course of the message, things that might be mentioned in passing, points that we might try to emphasize in a greater way than others. Lord, whatever the case, come and use thy word. And may thy son be seen, and may thy church be built, and may thy saints know what it is to rejoice in thy word and in thy son. Lord, may you truly have all the glory. There are so many things that we are lacking, so many shortcomings that come to this preacher's mind, personally speaking. And Lord, our denomination, this congregation, perhaps as a whole, families here, individuals here, Lord, we're all in the same boat. We all fall short of thy glory. But here tonight, show us something of it. Show us something of thyself. Show us something of thy son. May we know what it is to leave this place being touched by God and being spoken to and to have been changed and transformed from the preacher in the pulpit to thy saints in the pew and to the lost that are sitting among them. We we'll do a work which none of us can do for ourselves. Speak unto our hearts and bless us in thy mercy and in thy grace and in thy abundance we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Throughout history, biblical history as well as more modern day history, there are many, many wars and conflicts that have taken place. You can remind yourself of the days in Joshua's time as they were sent across the River Jordan, sent in to take the land which God had promised them. And time and time again, they are met with a foe, an enemy that had to be overcome, an enemy that had to be defeated. The very famous one, or the most famous one that we might have, is the city of Jericho. That great city that was impenetrable, it seemed, by any army around them. Whenever the Israelites came along and marched up to those city walls, the people within the walls got on top of the walls and laughed them, laughed at them to scorn. They made a mock of them. Who do you think you are coming around? And to add, as it were, to make things worse on top of that, they didn't come with an army. They didn't come with swords and with staves. They didn't come with a battering ram to break down the gates. No, they came empty-handed except for a couple of horns and trumpets. And this box that they carried in front of them, they must have looked like a right bunch of Egypts, as we might say here. 
What on earth were they doing? But they were following God's command. They were doing what God had told them to do. And they marched, and they marched, and they marched around that city. And they did so in exactly the way that God had called them to do and told them to do. And they compassed the city seven times, we're told in Joshua chapter 6. And just as God had promised Joshua, the walls came down. Verse 20 of chapter 6, it says, So the people shouted when the priests blew with the trumpets. And it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout, that the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and ass with the edge of the sword. They saw victory when they obeyed God. God was giving them what he had promised them. God had promised them land. He had told them it was theirs for the taking. And they went in and they destroyed God's enemies. They were used as God's hand of judgment in their day and age. And they wiped out nations that were living in sin living in rebellion and wickedness against God. And God used the nation of Israel to do that. You can might maybe think of more modern sieges or things that have happened in uh, more modern days or maybe, maybe even have learned about them or Solomon movies. One thing that comes to my mind when I think about people or, and cities and, and fortresses being sieged is, is Alamo. Uh, I was brought up for a number of years in, in America and even while we were in Jamaica, all of my education was all based on the American curriculum. And so all of the cowboys and Indians and everything that came with that, that was what caught my attention as we left. And they tell the story about what took place in the Alamo. These Texans had taken basically what was a little church and the surrounding area. They guarded it. They kept it. And the few men that were there prevented thousands of Mexican troops from getting in. But they failed in the end. They're known for their bravery. They're known for their courage, but they're not known for their success. In the passage that we have this evening, we have mention of, of walls and of gates and of kingdoms being built and kingdoms being broken down. You might not see it uh, directly as you look at the passage. You've, you've maybe heard about the gates of hell, that they would not be able to withstand this thing that is spoken about in the verse 18 of our text. But really, it is the idea of two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of hell itself, and there is the kingdom of heaven, verse 19. And it says that he would give unto Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We're not going to get into the controversy of this just before anybody uh, sort of starts wondering uh, what my opinion is on all of this. You might get a, a little hint here and there. But I want to focus your attention on the Christ of the church in this passage this evening. Not necessarily and primarily what the church is and who the church ought to be. We'll deal with some of that as we go along the way. But none of that would matter unless we have the Christ of the church. Unless you know who he is, and unless you know what he has come to do. In this passage, we just want to jump into it as quickly as we can here and, and deal with the person, the person of Christ that is mentioned here. I want you then to see his promise and to see his power, to see that he is one that has promised to do a work in this world through his people in this world and by his own power in this world. He came to destroy the devil and to deliver his people from Satan's bondage and from sin's blindness. But again, all of that would be meaningless. I'd be building a sandcastle if I didn't get you to Christ first and foremost. You could leave the meeting tonight, go home, and the world would wash all of these thoughts away. If you do not have your mind fixed and focused and grounded in who the Christ of the church is, 
Here's what it's all about. It's not about living a pious life or a holy life. It's not about coming to church Sunday morning, Sunday evening, sending your kids to Sunday school and to the kids meeting throughout the week. It's not about having Bible class and Bible studies and devotions and simply doing all of these things as part of a religious upbringing or a religious life. All of those things are good. All of them are important, but only in their rightful place. And that is upon the foundation of this person. The Bible is not about rules and regulations. The Bible is not all about laws that we are to adhere to. The Bible is not all about simply just reading through it and from Genesis to Revelation trying to do it within a year and barely remembering any of it. It's about Jesus. It's about the Christ, to be more specific. The one that was promised. The one that Hannah was looking forward to as we looked at this morning. She prayed about this king. She prayed about his coming. She prayed that he would come and conquer and judge this world in righteousness. She had an expectancy when she was in the place of prayer. And as we come to any service, and as you open any part of your Bible, you should have a desire to see something of Christ within it. This morning, I tried, maybe failed in doing so, but my intention anyway was to try and emphasize to you, every single one of us, that we as saints could not be saints unless we are in this Christ. Here tonight I want you to see that this Christ which we are in has power. And he has and shows that power through his church. The person that is mentioned here, he is confessed first and foremost. Just glance with me to the the opening part of uh, what we read a moment ago. He focuses the attention not on what the world is saying, who he is. It doesn't matter that they think he might have been John the Baptist brought again from the dead or Elias or other of the prophets such as Jeremiah. It doesn't really matter what they're all thinking. He wants to know what you're thinking. And I don't personally want you to stick your hand up or maybe even necessarily tell me at the door whether or not you are a child of God and you believe Jesus, the the historical figure that is recorded for us, not just in the Bible, but throughout history. You don't need to necessarily confess his name at the door to me. But here tonight, I want you to be able to stand before him, spiritually speaking, and to be able to answer in the very same way that Simon Peter answers. To look up to heaven. To see with the eye of faith one that is standing at the right hand of the Father. With nail-scarred hands and feet. The one that hung upon a cross at Calvary. And to say, thou art the Christ. The Son of God. The living God. If he was not the Christ, then we have no reason to be here. The Christ that Peter confesses to be Jesus, in this passage of Scripture, we we maybe get a little bit confused at times. We speak about Jesus Christ, our Lord, and we sort of merge all these names together. But I want you just to sort of set these things separate for a moment. Jesus is the man. That was the name that he was given. He was told to be called Jesus or Joshua, as it could have been translated as well, as the Savior of his people for that very purpose. But there are many other Jesuses that lived in his day. And there had to be a pinpointing of this exact person. They had been waiting for a Christ to come, the anointed one, the Messiah to come into the world to transform their world and their lives. Is it him? That's the question that the book of Acts deals with. Over and over again, they preach about Jesus being the Christ. The question simply is, is this the one that was promised in the Garden of Eden to Eve whenever they fell into sin that would come eventually from her loins? Is this the one that would come and save his people from wickedness and from damnation and from sin itself and from the devil? Is this the man that we've been waiting for? It's the question. Is he the one? Is he the chosen one? 
Is he the one that we should truly look to? Or is he just a good person? Elon Musk, I'm sure many of you know him, the owner of Tesla. And he's a millionaire, multi-millionaire, probably a billionaire or multi-billionaire. He was speaking a little bit of Christ in an interview recently. And he says Christ taught good things. He confessed that he tried to live by some of the teachings of Christ. He made a little bit of a joke here and there about some of the miracles that Christ performed in the early days of his ministry and and obviously misconstrued them. But nonetheless, he confessed that there was a man called Christ and a man that was Jesus and, and that he taught good things in the Bible. But that was as far as it went. Elon Musk doesn't believe that he has a soul that needs to be saved from hell. He simply sees this Jesus over here in the corner as being a good person. A righteous, a religious man that you can learn some lessons from, just like you might have had a good classroom teacher in school. But he's much more than that. He's not just a good man to be sort of set on a pedestal in humanity's history. He is the Christ which God promised to give to save you from your sin. Whenever you fell in Adam in the Garden of Eden, naturally speaking, we all were born into this world as sinners. And God, right back there at the very beginning, promised to send a Savior, Christ the Messiah. They were waiting for him, and we look back to him. This person is confessed by Peter to be the one. It is his statement of belief. I wonder what your statement of belief is. If you were to sit down with pen and paper this evening as you get home and to actually think about your life for the first time maybe even, to think about what lies ahead, what lies after death, why you exist, why you're here, what the purpose of anything is, is what this man at the church is talking about, is it true, is the Bible right, is, most, is the, the Muslim teaching in Islam, is it maybe what we should be looking to, should we be searching in, in Buddhism and all these other religions, what is right, what is wrong, what would you write down on that piece of paper as to be the truth that you live by? For Peter, it was thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. What is it for you? Is it just a blank page and you just sort of wake up Monday after week after week wondering what's going to happen that week in the workplace and just sort of floating through life? God wants you to stop tonight. Don't even wait till you get home. Mentally take a note of what your life is all about. And if it's about anything other than Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, then you're not even living. You might be breathing this evening you might have a good job. You might have all these things that make you look like you're successful in this world. But you're damned and on your way to hell. Just like all of us were. The Bible tells us in Matthew 10 verse 32, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. We have a duty and a responsibility to know what it is to confess who he is. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans for a moment. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. And to the chapter number 10. Romans chapter number 10 and the verses 9 to 13. This is a well-known portion of Scripture. You might have been told about the Roman road and people leading you to Christ through the portions of Scripture in various chapters. And this is one of those, one of those uh, signposts on the Roman road uh, to salvation. Uh, verse 9 of chapter 10, it says, That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. 
For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, it's one thing to confess his name, but you must also call upon this person for your salvation. You must not only believe him academically and maybe theologically or biblically speaking to be the one that is revealed here as the Christ, but you must have that in your heart. You must live in light of that truth. It must be the confession, not just that you write on a piece of paper, but a confession that you live by. His confession, Peter's confession about who this person was, that he is truly the Christ, the Son of the living God, it was also confirmed. Confirmed by Jesus Christ's answer in the verse 17 onwards. He says, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. He didn't go to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He didn't go to his, his teachers and his lecturers to learn this truth. No, this was something that came down from heaven. We could not search out the Christ for ourselves. We would not be able to believe any of this if it was not first and foremost revealed by heaven. All of the Bible, every single time, at least I try to, whenever it comes to the public reading of the scriptures, I try to emphasize that this is God's holy and his inspired word. It's not my word. It's not the church's word. It's not something that we've compiled together over thousands of years to try and make sense of life in this world. No, this is what God has given to me and to you. And he wants us to live in light of it. And we would not know that we were sinners. We would not know that there is a redeemer. We would not know about heaven and hell. We would not know about the road of destruction which we are on unless God had stepped into history and confirmed it by him revealing it unto us. Jesus Christ confirms Peter's answer. He basically says, yes, you're right. This little man who I am, naturally and humanly speaking, who is born in Bethlehem, lived in Nazareth, worked along my father as a carpenter. He comes along and says, yes, I am the Christ which the world has been waiting for. He comes along and says, yes, I am not only the one that has been awaited for thousands of years, but I am God's son. He goes on later on in his, in his life and in his ministry as he continues not just in confirming Peter's answer by his own response, but he confirms Peter's confession by his actions. Look at verse 21 of Matthew 16 again. It says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem. Why? To fulfill everything that the Messiah was prophesied to fulfill. Remind yourself of Isaiah 53 and you'll find it reflected in these words. To suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and to be killed, and be raised again the third day. He came to suffer, just as the Christ was prophesied to come and suffer. He came to die, just as the Messiah was promised to come and die. He came to raise himself from the dead, just as Jonah's prophecy and all that took place with his experience was picturing. Jesus Christ came into this world to fulfill all that God had promised he would fulfill. But I wonder, is his name the name that you confess? Is his name the name that you write over your life and that you live by? Or is it all about you? All about your ambitions, all about your desires, all about what you want to do with your life. Your life 
is as a vapor, the scripture tells us. In a couple of months, maybe even a couple of weeks' time, you can go out, maybe even tonight with the way the weather is, you can breathe out into the cold air and you'll see what, how short your life truly is. It appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Boil the kettle this evening, remind yourself of the fact that as that vapor disappears into your kitchen, that your life will one day disappear and everything that comes with it, all the possessions, all that you have, it's all meaningless if you have not Christ. Peter, he confessed him. Christ confirmed what he had answered, that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. This was his belief, and this is what our belief ought to be, that Jesus, who is the Christ, did suffer, did die, and is risen again for us, to save us, to redeem us. He confirms it by his answer and by his actions. That's his person, who he's identified by. Jesus is truly Christ. But he promises something to his people here. And it's really this that my mind was drawn to primarily. In the verse number 18, it says, I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will. This is his promise to me and to you and to all of his people. I will build my church. It's a personal promise. Ignoring all of the controversy of this text, primarily speaking about uh, Peter and this rock and what Christ really means uh, by the foundation upon which he is going to build his church, what he does here is he, he confirms and he, he purposes for us to realize that it will be him, Christ, that builds it. Peter, yes, will have a place to play and a part to play in the whole grand scheme of things. The confession which he makes in the previous verses will be a theological foundation upon which the church will be built, but none of that even matters unless we have these two words, I will, coming from the mouth of Christ. Christ promises here a personal promise, that he would build his church, and if he is the Christ, and if he is the Son of the living God, then we can take his promise to be true. This is something that is happening. I'm not sure if you've had uh, the the Reverend Jason Boyle with you here yet for deputation, Uh, but 13 years ago I sat in Lurgan, Free Presbyterian Church, and listened to him and his wife uh, laying out their plans as they were about to endeavor to go to the mission field of Mexico. Thirteen years later, just last Tuesday night, they were back again. He was back again. And God has moved. His church is being built. Souls have been saved. Numerically speaking, the church is growing. Spiritually speaking, it seems that there is great benefit and blessing being poured out upon them as they are under the ministry of the word week by week, taking out of uh, paganism and darkness and Roman Catholicism, not just in their little church that they have there, but other ministers coming in, others wanting to join the denomination. God is moving in that part of the world. And we might look look back, and I can think personally, 13 years, what have I done in 13 years? You might be the very same as me. What have we achieved? What have we succeeded in doing? I wonder, is it perhaps because we've been looking at ourselves more than we've been looking at Christ? He is the one that builds his church, not me. He is the one that builds his church, not this congregation. He is the one that builds his church, not our denomination. He is the one that builds his church, not the confessional creed churches that we have around us that believe in the reformed doctrines that we have and subscribe to. He builds his church. He is the one that will fulfill his promise. He is the one that moves in and through us, yes. But all the while, it is him. Christ must come in to us as individuals. He must reside in us as individuals. He must grow within us 
as individuals and as congregations, if we have any anticipation or expectation within us, we need to realize it must flow from him fulfilling his promise to us. It is personally his promise. He invested his entire life for this thing. You invest money, parts of your, your, your weekly or monthly wage into a pension props for the future. Jesus Christ came into this world and he gave his all for the future. And he didn't do it in the hopes that one day he might be able to withdraw a couple of hundred grand for the future and maybe live off it. No, he came with a certainty and with a hope for the joy that was set before him. He knew whenever he gave his life upon the cross at Calvary that his investment would come back with fruitfulness. His personal promise would be prosperous. And it has been. How many thousands of souls since he spoke those words have come into the kingdom of God? Yeah, we might not see them. Yeah, we might see empty pews. Go throughout history thousands of years. Not just to when he spoke these words, but prior to that, Hannah's day, throughout the, the history of Israel, how many individuals has Christ saved? How many are in heaven because he has fulfilled his promise about building his church? How many are Christians in Northern Ireland today? How many are saved throughout this world? How many millions living right now are in the church because he has fulfilled his promise? Our God is good. All those for whom Christ would die will be saved. Turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 10. We could have mentioned this this morning as we spoke on Hannah's prayer about keeping the feet of the saints, but since I didn't get to that this morning, I thought I'll mention it here today or tonight. John 10 verse 14 Just while you're looking that up, I'm going to read a couple of verses, so I might as well read this bit as you're finding it. John 10, verse 14, rather. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I'm known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. I'm not speaking about Israel. He's saying there are sheep outside of Israel. That's us. That's you. Jesus Christ, in his divine mind, I would imagine was perhaps thinking about an individual here tonight. Somebody unknown to his disciples, somebody unknown to the people of that society, somebody that would not be born for thousands of years, but somebody nonetheless that is here tonight, still perhaps in your sin, but God sent his son to die for you. As he speaks about his sheep for whom he died, and he talks about these other sheep that would be called into the fold, I wonder was he speaking about you? Them also I must bring. Is he bringing you in tonight? They shall hear my voice. Are you hearing his voice tonight? And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Later on in the chapter, verses 25 to 30, he goes on and continues. He says, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. All of these things that I've tried to show you in my life, all these things that I've revealed to you here tonight in the Scriptures, why don't you believe them? Why are you still living for self and not living by the confession of Peter that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Verse 26, but ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep. 
Are you still outside of the fold of God because you've rejected everything that he said, everything that your parents have taught you, everything that you know about the Bible? Are you not heeding his word? If you are his sheep, if you are to be saved, then verse 27 will be true. If you, my sheep, hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. I don't care what your profession is tonight. Are you following him? I don't care about your pretense and your church membership and all the other things that you can add to your list of good deeds that you've done in your life. None of it matters. The question is, are you following God? Do you hear him? It says, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. And what do the people do in this scene? They want to kill him. They hate him. They want nothing to do with him. The reality is there's hundreds, maybe even thousands of people sitting in churches just like this tonight throughout our land and throughout the world and they cannot be bothered. They couldn't care less. All of these truths, they're meaningless to them. You're indifferent to them. But Jesus Christ has made a promise. It's a personal promise. He didn't subcontract it out to another individual to pay the price. He paid it in full for you. And he is going to receive his reward. Every single soul for whom his blood was shed will be brought into his famine, into his fold, and his promise will be seen in its prosperity in the days that lie ahead. You might think that the church and the Christian is part of the minority, just you wait until the judgment day. Every knee will bow, as we mentioned this morning. Will your knee be forced, or will you bow in praise? His power is the last thing we want to look at just very briefly. Our time is gone. But the picture here is of a gate, and I think the imagery is of a kingdom that is stationary, something that is not moving, but something that encloses the people that reside within it. There are two ways you can look at this, and I think it's important to highlight the both ways because the second way is, again, meaningless without the first. I think Christ is speaking about himself here. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And what it's talking about primarily is against his work. The gates of hell will not prevail against his saving work. It will not be able to keep him in the tomb. The imagery here and even uh, the language that is used could primarily again be speaking about simply the grave. The grave will not prevail over Christ. And it didn't. He would not be left to die and to rot like every other man in this world. He would rise again three days after. He would prevail against the enemy. Just like Hannah's prayer that we looked at this morning. That same word is being used. That everybody else apart from him does not have the strength to prevail. But Jesus Christ, because he is God's son, because he is the Christ, has power to prevail against death. He destroys death. That's why, for us as Christians, the death has lost its sting. 
No longer are we to be concerned about what happens whenever we are on our deathbed. Yes, there may be pain. Yes, there might be sorrow in leaving our loved ones behind. But the joy that awaits us is greater than this world could ever imagine. In Matthew, or rather in Colossians chapter 2 and the verse 15, it says that having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Talking about his death again. He rose victorious over all sin and over all of the devil's dominion whenever he rose again from the dead. But I think the picture goes a little bit further than simply a grave which he conquered in rising again from the grave. It's talking about the kingdom, the dominion, that city of the devil. This morning we were talking about Hannah and how God's people, his saints, are kept, guarded. The same is true for Satan's people. He guards them. And perhaps tonight he is building a barricade around you, trying to prevent you from hearing anything of the gospel, trying to distract you from all the things that you could be doing if you weren't here this evening and if you were somebody somewhere else. Whatever the case might be, the devil has a desire to keep you in darkness. He doesn't want you to be saved tonight. He doesn't want you to be rescued from the kingdom of his perilous state. He doesn't want you to be rescued from hell and all of the destruction that awaits you. But God wants you to be delivered. Jesus Christ tells us in this verse of Scripture that there are people that are behind the gates of hell, so to speak, behind the devil's domain and his dominion, under his power, under his authority, bound by their sin, is the language that's used in Scriptures, and even more than that, dead in their sin, blinded by the world, But this passage tells me and tells you that those gates, even though they might seem impenetrable, even if your loved ones might be sitting wondering if any of this is getting into your mind this evening, there's a promise found in this passage of Scripture that God is all-powerful. And no matter what little barricade the devil might be able to put in Christ's way, he can just brush it away. He can just overrun it in an instant. In a moment, you could be delivered. It would not take much for God to step into this meeting and to do a work which no man could do. In Ephesians 4, in the verses 8 to 10, it says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. Not speaking again about his death. Before he went into heaven as victorious conquering king, he had to go into the world, into the death, into death itself. Verse 10, he that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. But it's really those words in the verse number 8. He led captivity captive. What does that mean? In conclusion this evening, if you're still in your sin, you're captivated by that sin. You have been captured, in a sense, by sin. Captured by the devil. You have been ensnared by him. You are enclosed by him. He guards you. He does not want to let you go. But Jesus Christ can break in. Jesus Christ can break the bonds of your sin, and he can deliver you. Every single individual in this room, if you were to simply confess Jesus Christ as Lord, call upon him as Savior. The promise is there for you. 
you shall be saved. I've closed my Bible, but I want you to turn back with me to Matthew 10 for a moment. Just as we conclude, this is the last thing I want to draw your mind to. Matthew 10. You read some of these verses already. We've read verse 32. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But until now, I perhaps haven't emphasized the negative as much as needs to be done. You see, verse 33, it simply says, Whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. The church is to be at war with the world. Not with physical swords, but with the spiritual sword, God's word. The truth of the scriptures is the only thing that can deliver you. And if you would not join Peter in his confession that Christ is truly Jesus, the man that lived alongside him 2,000 odd years ago, if you do not believe any of that, if you do not confess that and speak that forth in the world and live in light of it, what you are doing is denying it. And there will come a day whenever he will ultimately and finally remove all hope for you when he denies you a place in heaven. The Christ of the church. Jesus is that person. Jesus makes a promise. Jesus is powerful and able to save. Why not come to him tonight? What little barricade are you putting up? Do you honestly think that it is worthwhile living your life for self and ultimately being damned in hell forever? God is good. No matter what it is that you're doing, no matter what it is that you've done, he is able to save. No sin can prevail over him and his death. And here tonight he would come in mercy and he would ask you to come unto him who is life everlasting. Let's just bow together as we conclude our service in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would just simply come and speak and continue on in the hearts of each one that are gathered in. And we pray that you'd have mercy upon those that might be outside of Christ. We pray that you'd also give grace to us that are believers to realize that we could have done nothing, that we have no strength in and of ourselves. But Jesus Christ, he came and mercifully and graciously fulfilled his promise to save all those for whom he was sent to save. We're thankful, Lord, that the blood of the cross at Calvary, that it is sufficient that it is efficient and it is able to save us to the uttermost, all those who would call upon thee. Lord, come and have mercy upon the sinner, especially tonight, those that are still in their sin, those that are still behind the gates of hell, those that are still being kept by Satan. Would you not free them this evening? Would you not give them that delivery which many here have experienced? Would you not add them to your kingdom and build your church even tonight? And here, this church in Crossgar. Come and bless us, Lord. Bring us to our homes in safety. And we know what it is to go out as members of the church throughout the week ahead. Those that have been called out. May we live out our Christianity in the world around us. And may we see many souls, even one for Christ. Lord, again, we pray these things in thy name and for thy glory. Amen.